Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. Okay, let's kick off with our first featured guest, which is Yasmin Paul, immediately to my left. Yasmin, you want to quickly introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your thoughts around democracy? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm really excited to chat about democracy today. It's such a big and curly question with so many parts, so hopefully we get to unpack some interesting things from that. Um, I describe my work as a youth advocate. And what is a youth advocate? Um, I wish I can summarise it in one sentence, but there's a lot of different parts. Essentially, I'm really interested in who is at the decision-making table and who is not. Um, As a young woman, I often talk about my perspectives um, and young women's perspectives on political issues um, across the media and through public speaking. Um, I'm also fortunate to work with um, Plan International Australia as their ambassador, which does fantastic work empowering young women and girls. And a lot of, I think, questions about how young women are feeling disillusioned in democracy right now because of factors like sexism and not seeing themselves represented. So um, that's just kind of a quick summary. Um, I guess when it comes to my thoughts about democracy, there was actually... An interesting experience I had when I was 17 years old and I was on my gap year and I was interested in politics, didn't know where I aligned politically, decided to show up to a political event after work. I rocked up and I described it as a sea of suits. There was no one that looked like me. Um, No one, everyone was taller, standing in circles. And when I joined the circle, I heard things like infrastructure and economy. And I thought, as a 17-year-old, where is my place in all of this? And I think that was one of the first tastes of what is lacking in the way democracy is speaking to groups right now and um, got me down this train of, of thinking, how can we make sure it actually includes all of us in our diversity? Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. We will obviously unpack these concepts and ideas way more, but I just want to sort of give you a bit of a high-level exploration. Our next person here is is um, Andrea Carson. Andrea, would you introduce yourself, please? Thanks, John. Hello, everyone. I'm a political scientist, and I was, uh, in a past life, a professional journalist working at the ABC and The Age. And my interest in democracies, unlike Jasmine, who is right in the thick of it, mine's more to stand back and to study it and to uh, understand what the, uh, how decisions are made, why they're made the way that they are, rather than to roll up my sleeves and get involved in it. I tend to look at things um, with my journalism background and also PhD in political science through the... I look at politics through the lens of the media. So the sorts of things that I study are things that we're all encountering, and that is misinformation, disinformation, what effect it has on the quality of democracy and how we make decisions when we go to the ballot box, which everyone in this room will be doing soon. We're just waiting for the uh, Prime Minister to announce when that election's going to be in May. But the other thing that I'm interested in is, more broadly speaking, the quality of information that we receive. And so my first, uh, I guess, intellectual pursuit of this was looking at journalism that was high quality, that was evidence-based, 
and my PhD was focused on investigative journalism. Now I tend to be looking at the lower end of that spectrum of low quality information and what impact that has on democracy um, and our capacity to make good decisions for ourselves. So I'm looking forward to hearing your views on that and to having a discussion with you about it. So I'm a geek, so anyone, anytime says analysis and data analysis of, of situations, I, I always, they've always got my attention. <laughs> so thank you for joining us today. And then we finally have Kyle on the far end there, Kyle Reedman. Um, please introduce yourself. Sure. Thank you for having me, John, and nice to be here in person. I'm feeling quite at home here because I spend most of my time doing what I call work in democratic innovation. I split my time working for two organisations that are mostly the same organisation. The first is the New Democracy Foundation, where I run projects and design projects that are sort of demonstrations of these innovations. That's working in the space of citizens' assemblies and democratic lotteries. The second is change... Well, the New Democracy you can think of as politician-facing and, like, show-don't-tell. And Change Politics, the other organisation, is a sort of public awareness and education angle, which is an event like this where I can tell you all about what I do and, and hopefully buzz you up about the fact that there are different ways of doing democracy. Thank you. I think it might be a good place to start to maybe even define democracy. Different countries reflect democracy different ways. We have the way that Australia thinks a democracy should run. The US has its own version of how democracy should run. You could argue Singapore has its own unique way of defining and running its own democracy. Do we need to maybe define democracy to start with in a, maybe in an Australian context and a global context and maybe really understand any of the differences there and start with that? Anyone? Well, I tend to break it down to look at three constituent parts that democracies need to have. And as John said, there's social democracies or liberal democracies, different forms across that spectrum. But essentially, democracies have three things. They have a, rule, a body of laws so that we all know what the laws are and we know how to abide by them. They have um, an ability for us all to participate and the best democracies or those that get the strongest scores on indices around democracies enable maximum participation of the public. And then they also provide a space for democratic discourse for us to be able to exchange ideas and a tolerance in that exchange of ideas for different viewpoints allowing them to come together. And that's where we're seeing some of the problems with democracy, whether you call it a spiral of silence or council culture, those sorts of things, where we're not getting that pluralism of ideas coming to the fore. With the old notion, and perhaps this is outdated and we can talk about this, um, the idea that the best ideas come to the top, that you debate out different perspectives and the strongest come to the fore. Um, and the reason I put a cloud over that is because... Now that we have algorithms uh, with digital technologies that determine what we get to hear and how we get to hear it, maybe we're not getting equal time to those different ideas to be able to have that proper contest. But essentially, um, democracy allows for the participation of the people by the people for the people so that the people ultimately determine their own futures. Yeah, and if I could deepen, like, nuance that a little bit, um, it's interesting. I just graduated from law and they often talked about this idea of representative democracy. And if you look at the Constitution of Australia, it doesn't have many kind of substantive things apart from creating parliament because the idea is that a representative democracy is when everybody has a vote and has a say. But to me, I wonder, is the word... What do we mean by the word representative? 
just because one person has a vote and we reach majority outcome, does that make it representative? Or can we get more substantive than that and ask who is representing us? And if certain people are not being represented or certain groups are not being represented, is it truly representative? And also the tensions then, if that someone is representing a minority group, but let's say is the only person in the room, can they truly represent and advocate for that group? So totally. there's definitely, I guess, depths to the word representative. For sure. And um, even in Australia itself, it didn't allow women to vote in the very, very first early election. So, you know, we have a vote of people, arguably half the population that represents and serves. So these are some of the things I definitely want to unpack in much more detail. Um, are there any thoughts out there around, your thoughts around representation and, um, and, and the ability for people to have that voice and to be heard? Because one of the things that came up to me was, um, I got an email saying, oh, I'm not vaccinated, you're in a building that requires you to be vaccinated, and so therefore I'm automatically excluded from this conversation. I think that person had a very valid point in that, you know, how do we create, create the inclusiveness but when there's adi additional surrounding structures, in this case COVID, which wouldn't have happened two years ago, which excludes certain people from even having a conversation. But um, any, anyone have any thoughts or ideas or comments around that? Uh, yeah, just, just a comment on, on sorry, I forgot your name. Yasmin. Yasmin, Yasmin. Yasmin. Yep, uh, just following it up on that. Um, if you're talking about representative democracy, does it necessarily mean that only the majority gets to say what they want to say? What about the minority? Is that the true nature of democracy? If you're taking that as a, as a definition, how are we going to address the minority issue? Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Tom? Yeah, I can jump in there. I think, like, look, I think um, there are many different ways in which you can do representative democracy. Australia has a particular model, but there are the others that build spaces for my minority populations to have a voice. It's about... I think there are many different ways you can think about representation. It's not just the person who is particularly in parliament, but it might be whether or not someone involved in a decision is like you, lives near you, has a job like you, or a background like you, that kind of thing. Um, the model we have at the moment is quite narrow in that sense. Like you look at parliament and that's what we traditionally think of as our political representative system and like it's getting better, but it's not particularly diverse. Um, there are many other different ways, I think, that we could approach representation um, in that angle. The space I come from is stratified random selection and it's literally picking random people and involving them in a process that um, like solves problems. Um, yeah, I think we, we could probably think more broadly than, than the one that we've got now, if that's what I take you suggesting. I might add that Kyle does a lot of work in what's called citizen assemblies, which is a really interesting... Um, process, I guess you call it, around how we explore these issues that are important to people with people on the ground. So maybe if you want to sort of expand on that and how that plugs into the, the democratic, uh, democratic, democratic process, could you just expand on that for us? Sure. I think so. a way to situate it, I guess, is that we have a political system that's very responsive to public opinion. Um, and that has a, a couple of big impacts. Our politicians are just kind of actors in a political space that are responding to incentives and they've really optimised to win elections at the detriment of governing. Um, so the space that I work in is, well, how can we then build processes that help them govern in a way that sort of diffuses the public opinion angle that is they're so afraid of? Um, 
And so our, our, our suggestion then is basically that if you can have a group of representative people who have spent a long time thinking about a problem and hearing from a diverse range of sources and experts and then finding common ground around the solutions to a problem, the public is more likely to trust them than they are the politicians. We know levels of trust in politicians are quite low. Trust in people like you is actually quite high. Um, so if we can be, build mechanisms like citizens' assemblies that take advantage of that relationship, our trust in one another and not with what Yasmin refers to as suits, um, then maybe we can make some progress. And look, the exciting thing is that these things work. Um, they're spreading all around the world and there's actually Victoria is sort of the Australian leader in, in, in a sense in terms of implementation in Australia. Um, I, I could talk for ages about what mm. they look like, but uh, it's a room like this in a sense, um, maybe even more diverse in terms of where from the state they come from, what types of jobs. There's not enough high vis in here to begin with, but um, that's kind of the environment that I'm, I'm trying to kind of paint a picture for you. Um, and then rather than us, maybe you're hearing from experts on something like climate change and then you're hearing from them over maybe six months on, across eight meetings and spending about 50 hours. And then at the end, you might co-write a report that has recommendations to government. Um, that's as much colour, I think, as I can give before I need to kind of Thank gasp you. and take a breath. So next time you all come in, I all expect you to wear a suit. <laughs> um, one of the things I quite find interesting about sillers and assemblies is you can pick an issue and get a representative community to have a dialogue about that independent of the party line. And so you actually start to address the issues at hand rather than the, dem, dem, no, the party line. Um, can you talk about how that potentially adds you know, deeper discussion, more considered and thoughtful interaction. And feel free, ladies, too, to add anything you've, you've, you have around that. Yeah, definitely. Look, I think most people, when it comes to it, have no idea what they think about any given policy problem. Um, like, to be honest, like, and I don't mean to be rude, but you've probably spent no time really thinking about most of the issues at hand at a level that compares to experts, right? And there's often deep disagreement between experts in some of those issues. So they're often really live debates. Um, that means that when we're like when we think of the party line kind of thing, that's people kind of signalling based on what they've seen, and like there's all these identity affiliations you build around your own sort of personal political um, profile. People kind of jettison that straight away when you come in and just give them a problem to fix, um, where they don't have any signalling for what their their answer should be. Um, and look, the parties often are building up those. Um, platforms, it's it's kind of like there's no clear logical line between every single policy that the Labor Party has. It's about drawing a map around a, a large enough section of the electorate to win Parliament. Um, so when you dilute it down to just a policy problem, it's actually easy to get people out of that kind of framing. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting that uh, we, we, there's a distinction between democracy, policy, poly policy decisions and policy debate and, you know... Well, yeah, I also wanted to touch upon the idea of the kind of minority-majority tension. Um, you know, I, I was thinking about how democracy works and, um, yes, it's kind of the people and the politicians, but we often say, well, there's also civil society that can pull and push, but it's even diffi more difficult for marginalised people to get a say in any of those spaces. So I was recently part of a project and that involved loudly campaigning for women's rights to make sure that's front and centre in the federal election. And there were a number of diverse women who were part of it. But when we came to making that 
public. They said, I can't, even though they were part of diversity groups, not-for-profits, because their organisation relied on funding and relied on it being bipartisan. And the reality is, if, the if people who are closer to privilege and the status quo, it's easier for them to publicly advocate for these things because it's seen as less divisive. But the further you get from the status quo, the more divisive, offensive, controversial it is, which means you're less likely to have funding, you're less likely to have a platform, and you're less likely to see that change. And it was interesting because... I, a couple of years ago, I was speaking to a professor who's um, uh, gay and has worked a lot in um, queer rights, and he was saying, he talked about even marriage equality. He wasn't in favour of marriage equality. And I said, like, why? You know, you'll get your gay. Um, and he said, well, I think that there was a lot more that we could have fixed and advocated for. So, for example, in the US, just to illustrate um, how big this is, Black trans individuals, 50% have been incarcerated. 50% have gone through the prison system. So to him, he's saying, I don't want to endorse something that is, to him, he thought was superficial. Now, I'm not saying that it is, but I think the issue is, you know, the more majoritarian issues that um, relate to those who sit within the status quo are more likely to be amplified, and those that affect a smaller group or those who are more disadvantaged don't get, um, you know, don't get airtime and don't get heard. So yeah. that there's also that part of the equation too. So that un un unravels a couple of things, obviously, obviously minority representation, but also the ability to be heard and the ability to influence who to be heard. And maybe I want to sort of throw to Andrew around this, around things like political donations or political advertising. I know you have sort of a, some experience around that. Yeah, but I wanted to pick up on a point that both the other speakers have already made where we're starting to look at some of the problems with the majoritarian system of government, which is Australia is a representative democracy and it does have a majoritarian system and that is whichever party gets the most votes in the lower house is the one that uh, determines policy and then there is some of a deliberative process within the two chambers in order for bills to be processed. Now, that's the system that we have and we can start critiquing some of the flaws of that system. And perhaps if I was to critique some of the flaws, it's something that I think we're all aware of and that is that it's reliant on a two-party system uh, primarily. There are some minor parties, but the coalition, Liberal National Party and the Labor Party. And the problem is people don't join parties anymore. So if you look at the Labor Party, its membership, and it's always hard to get absolute solid figures on this because they're not transparent and they're not published, but most football teams have a much larger membership base than the political parties do. So when we start talking about majority representation, a good example, I think, to think about is the same-sex marriage debate. So for 10 years from 2007 onwards, the majority of Australians wanted same-sex marriage and that was shown out through various public opinion polls, but there was no movement coming from the political parties who ultimately decide policy and decide what gets enacted into law. And we might ask, well, why are the parties not delivering the will of the people in that instance? And the answer is because of these small membership bases and the parties end up being what we call in academia interest aggregators. They bring in people with very particular interests who get a voice through the political party and those voices which in both sides of the major parties were dominated by conservative religious forces were resistant 
to change around the same-sex marriage debate. Now, another example, um, not on a social issue, but on um, a broader issue, is war in Iraq. Uh, when Australia decided to go into that war, first Afghanistan and then um, Iraq with America, the majority of the public did not support that. And yet the politicians were prepared to make a decision, or the parties, with their small bases um, beyond public opinion. So these are some of the things that um, could be improved with our political system, is to get more engagement within parties. Or you might think maybe the party system's outdated and it's time for something else, of which Carl offers a really interesting example with what we call direct democracy, getting the people directly to inform and to um, have an opinion. Um, so there's all those different types of democracy. To go back to that very opening question that John posed about what is democracy, that it covers a wide area. And it's not always the majority that gets to have the say, even though we have a majoritarian government. And something I think I'm curious about, about deliberative democracy, is is will it be rooted in a historical context? And by that, um, I've been quite interested in deliberative democracy and, and, and looking at what that entails. And it focuses a lot on persuasion. So people in a room coming to a consensus and an agreement. But let's put that into practice. And let's say there is a minority group and ma the majority group. And it's, let's say, about something that is directly affecting someone's life. Um, let's say they're a person of colour. How does that dynamic play out because it isn't just about person A and person B. There's a lot more history and one person will be, you know, affected more, if that makes sense. You know, I'm thinking about things like, you know, the white Australia policy and the fact that women couldn't vote and all these kind of real-life practical tension. How do we, um, how do we recognise those imbalances in our interactions on a deliberative scale? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, look, I think we actually have a lot of freedom here because we're kind of building our own democratic system from the ground, all well, off the ground up, but it's like we can do whatever we want, right? And the way I think about it is that citizens' assemblies are what I would describe as the best environmental conditions you can have for finding agreement. It's like giving people lots of time, face-to-face -face experience with one another, um, we talked about representation before and sometimes something that comes up when I talk about citizens' assemblies is that they're often a room of about 40 people and how can you represent all of Australia in, in a room that small? Sometimes with representation, it's often good to think about the way in which perspectives are brought into a room, so channeling that through speakers and advocacy groups. The first question I get, so when we go into a process, we the citizens have got like a background briefing book, they've read up and then they for end of the first day is kind of like asking a bit of a, what more information do you, do you need and who do you trust to give it to you? And the first question that's always asked is, do we have someone who's an Indigenous person in this room? And if not, who's the local advocacy group that we can bring in? They're normally brought in on the first day anyway, but if then that's like a thing that's in their mind. And I think people are often really aware of these kinds of um, issues, particularly when we're not talking about a room of like 10, 15 people who are very similar, but... 40 people who have spread throughout a whole jurisdiction coming together. Um, and, like, yeah, it's really we can build good quality processes, just pick the thing that's a problem and then let's think through how we could solve it kind of approach rather than at the moment it's like a patchwork over this system that we built like 100 years ago and we're like, oh, how can we fix this thing now that's a new problem? It's like a very outdated model that isn't probably fit for purpose maybe. Yeah. Qu question. Oh. Thank you. Um, so, Carl, I've got a question for you regarding the citizen assemblies. So, um, I guess 
often, you know, the, the kind of best stories come from the, 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 the people with the lived experiences, right, to, to kind of share their perspectives. So how does, you know, if the spoken voice is the medium through which, you know, we communicate, you know, their stories, how do you manage scenarios where that, you know, the lived experience of those people cannot be done verbally? So, and I speak from very personal experiences. This is my son. He's 13 and he's on the autism spectrum. We have a communication issue, which we are working on, and um, words do not come easily to him. So how does his voice get representation in a citizen assembly? Yeah, that's a great question. Look, it, t it touches on what I was just talking to um, before, where it's like we can't have everyone in the same room in these processes. That's what representative democracy is all about. Um, but it's about ensuring that uh, the best channels for those voices are brought into the room. And so that's often through advocacy groups whose jobs are to do that all the time and make sure that that's done in a, in a way that is robust and, and faithful to those people. Um, yeah, it's like a difficult challenge that is, is probably never going to be done perfectly. Um, but it, like I said before, it is, it is about doing it honestly and, and really kind of trying to solve the problem rather than um, make something work with something that is like a legacy artifact, yeah. I think that's such an interesting question though because it touches, it almost um, makes a lot more visible discrimination embedded within our structures. So things like ableism where people can't, can't speak or, or can't participate in at least an oratory kind of democratic process. And there are also people who can't participate. They could be refugees, those that are detained. You know, we have to rely on people who are not living that experience, bringing that to politicians. You know, there are people, I was, um, my thesis covered, um, which was about intersectional perspectives of constitutional law, looked at a case where the High Court found that prisoners imprisoned for the jail term of three years or longer could not vote. And I was saying, but what about the fact that First Nations populations are disproportionately incarcerated, those that are low income, those that are disadvantaged, they don't even have a vote. So there are people who are barred from even having a say in this process. And, and that is just something that I got thinking about on that question. Yeah. Question for the audience. Do you think we have proper representation and debate in, the, in, in our political discourse? My question, let me rephrase it in a slightly different way. In Australia, we see minorities actually, for instance, if you're talking about wheelchair ramps, all right, disabled people form a very, very small percentage of the Australian population, but still the Australian government and the Australian society has moved across and it's done whatever is required to be done. So strictly speaking, it's not a minority-driven agenda. The minor, sorry, majority-driven agenda. The minorities do get what they want to a certain extent. My question was, should that be the case? If so, how do we redefine democracy? So, just wanted to clarify that. Anyone have a response here? Sid. Actually, uh, I had a follow-up on that, and my question was, I, I'm not sure if I object to the statement has traditional democracy become complacent because if democracy is by the people, for the people, of the people as a very basic definition, there is nothing like traditional democracy. It is democracy. It's just that as the, as every time you introduce a new member into the community, that version of the way we look at it changes, the lens changes. 
And if so, then Carl, what you were talking about earlier, then is there an argument for micro-democracies existing in a country where those micro-democracies facilitate a certain conversation with it's about disability or people with different conditions, and then that becomes a louder voice, gets amplified, then become a majority democracy. Is that a better way to go forward with it? But, and the other thing I would say is that John, I mean, what I love about these conversations is that I come here not because to learn, but to leave with more questions than I came with. Because that makes me think a bit longer and deeper about the same topic uh, to then become a better person. So thank you so much for doing this. And so, I, I also, oh, oh sorry. Your question makes me think of two things, or um, your comments. And one is the idea of a famous political scientist um, by the name of Dahl who says we don't actually have an ideal form of democracy at this point in time, that every democracy, whether it's representative, direct, liberal, social, all have particular problems. And if you look at the US compared to Australia, we can see problems with the US democratic system compared to our system. John touched on it before with money politics, those sorts of things. And so um, Dahl's version is called polyarchy and no country achieves all the different parameters that were in there. But the other thing that you've both got me thinking about is the idea of substantive representation versus descriptive representation. And substantive representation is the idea that um, we, our leaders or our representatives really get to representing issues that represent um, the majority of the public. Descriptive is where we want to see in our parliaments people who represent us. We're a multicultural society and we want to see um, that representation reflected in those 151 lower house seats and 76 upper house seats so that we see lots of different um, languages, races, religions represented. The arguments that come up for and against those is that do... I, as a female, if I was in the parliament, would I only be able to represent women? Can men represent women and women's issues? Do you have to look like what you want to represent in order to represent it effectively? Uh, and that's a question for all of us to think about. Or can I represent other people's interests even if I don't look like them, which is getting to that question of substantive representation? Yeah, and I also had another kind of similar thought about substantive representation. And to me, to me, it becomes, it's descriptive up until there are enough people who can change the consensus in their favour. So what I mean by that is if you look at, let's say, a party, and there's one person of colour in that entire party, and let's say it's a major party, yes, that's great that there's one person there, but are they really going to flip the balance of power? No. And are they really going to be able to keep hammering, let's say, a cultural diversity point every single time when it comes to a policy? No, because it is a consensus-based model, a majoritarian model. So I think more and more, including in my advocacy, when I'm the only person who looks like me in a room, it's a lot harder to get my perspective across, whereas when I'm in a room with, let's say, several diverse women who have experience, they can say, she's right, or they can say X, Y, Z, and I can say, I agree. And that, the, I think the numbers game and the critical mass, as they often call it, is essential in creating something substantive too. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say, touch on something that Andrew brought up. Um, we ran a process in Geelong a couple of years ago 
this audience might be aware of some controversy around the mayor a couple of years ago in the... Was it the mayor who was the um, paparazzi... Yeah. Yeah, guy. He was the first Australian politician as a mayor to get over a million um, Twitter followers, uh, even before Kevin Rudd, I think. Yeah, he's quite sensational, is the way I'd describe him. He... um, Anyway, he was forced to leave in the council they went into administration and we were brought in to run a process around representation and what the local council might look like, how they were elected in particular, whether or not the mayor was directly elected or chosen by councillors and the ward structuring and, and that kind of thing. And we asked a question in a broad survey to the broad Geelong um, public and then also talked about it um, with the people in the room. And we, when we surveyed, we asked what was important to you when... Um, someone was representing you, whether or not they lived near you, they had a job like you, they looked like you, all those kind of different angles to representation. And it, and it came back very, very firmly that um, so someone who lived near me was basically at the bottom. And then when the survey went into more detail around uh, solutions to this and ward structuring, they actually advocated for single wards. Why you would pick single wards is often when you want someone who is living right next to you to be your representative. So, like, these two kind of um, approaches to representation are totally lost in some people's minds. They're not... Like, when you present people information with no um, background or understanding or priming for the conversation on the topic, they will give you an answer that they think is saying what they they think is their case, and then they might give you another one and be, and be kind of confused. It's fascinating. Yeah, well, one of the things I think we need to remember, and you all know it anyway, is that we're busy people. Yeah. We're trying to send our kids to school. We're trying to make money to put food on the table. We're paying the bills. We're doing all sorts of things, running around for sport, looking after our pets, whatever it is that consumes our time. We don't all have every minute of every day to think about politics. Now, I think that's a shame because I love politics. But I really respect that most Australians are not engaging with politics every day, or at least formal politics, because I think there is politics in everything, whether you're dealing with your sporting club or um, dealing with the school council or whatever it may be. But the types of policy issues that Kyle's dealing with while direct democracy and the citizen juries have done some really valuable things across Australia and highlight how consensus building can work, do we all have the time to put in to sitting down? How long do they take typically? Uh, you're probably attending six meetings across three months. You do get paid though. Okay. Oh, there's an incentive. But imagine if we did that for every single policy decision that the federal politicians were doing. We'd never have time to do all those other things that we need to do in our life. But perhaps there's a role for technology here that, um, and you'd probably know more about this than I do, that technology be, can be used in such a way that we have a vote on everything all the time yeah. rather than every three years when we go to the polls. But, of course, I also don't want to be too glib about this. Um, we don't just enact democracy during the ballot box every three years. We participate, whether it's signing petitions, whether it's turning up to town hall meetings, uh, whether it's um, filling out surveys. We participate in democracy and lots of other things, uh, other ways, giving our elected representatives some feedback about what we think about things other than just going to the ballot box. Well, can I also... It's interesting when you talk about time because, to me, the first thing my mind goes to is class. Certain people have more time and resources than other people. And I had a really interesting conversation with my mum, who is a mental health care worker. 
she's a nurse, and we were talking about politics, and she said, I don't have time to care about politics, which was very interesting because there are many things that she could get up in arms about. First, the pay of care workers is extraordinarily low. The quality of working conditions, it's not unionised, especially in places like aged care, very casualising working three jobs. Um, you know, there's lots of temporary migrant workers there who are vulnerable. There's so much to be up in arms about, especially in the pandemic with no pay rise despite that increased risk. And yet, people like my mum are so busy to put food on the table for their kids and the mental load is on the here and now she can't stop and think about politics and watch Question Time. Whereas those who have more, not only time, but they can have a friend of a friend who knows a minister or their friend is a politician or something like that, they're closer to halls of power. They can pick up a phone, they can get engaged through other ways, not just through town halls and things like that. So I also wonder who has the time and capacity to care about politics, which is also an issue. I'm assuming everyone here has time. Uh, <laughs> Down the back, and then we'll bring these two ladies here. I think there was one over here as well. So maybe start down there. Thanks. I, uh, I feel at the start you sort of talked about sticking on the systemic issues here, and I, I feel like all three of you have got so close to something I'm hoping I'm going to learn tonight. But, Carl, you, you said before talking about, you know, what's important to you, and I, I think it's naive of any of us to think that we actually decide what's important to us. You know, the, the, start of, the start of the evening, Andrew, you, you sort of said, you know, the quality of information, and whilst I might quibble your, your general point, you know, where are we getting all of that from? And, you know, Yasmin, you're talking about democracy and people and all of the, the things we've all learned, but we're not talking about the lobby groups and the companies and the mm. donations. And, you know, John, you asked Andrew a question before about donations. I was really hoping you were going to go there, but... Let's go the next. It, it, it feels like that's the real issue here. It's not the bit that we see, the bit on the surface that's visible, but rather it's, you know, why do we let foreigners donate to our political parties that then set policies for us? And, you know, we do that through the masks of companies they have shares in and all these other things. Just stop it. <laughs> yeah. what, what am I missing? I, I'm, I'm just a dumb guy up the street, but there must be a better answer to that. Can we maybe come back to the, uh, answer that now? But yeah, sure. I don't think you're missing anything. I think what you've touched on is agenda setting, and that is who sets the agenda. Uh, there's a famous aphorism from the 1960s about we often get much of our information from the media, and this aphorism is the idea from a guy called Cohen that the media doesn't tell you how to think, but it does tell you what to think about. So if you think of the nightly news, and I know we've now got lots of different ways to get information than what an uh, old guy in the 20th century was saying, but if you look at the nightly news, maybe you watch Channel 10, which is an hour long, they would cover a maximum of 20 stories. What are those 20 stories that get on that list? Who determines what those stories are? And it goes to a point that Yasmin was making about people who have time but also access. Who has access? And she spoke about access through networks and um, knowing people of influence. But the other point that you've just touched on is access through money. And this is a problem that Australia has, um, a really big problem actually, that makes us far worse than most other democracies in that we don't have very good laws around transparency of political donations, and political donations is a way to buy access. 
No politician is going to admit that they took a, 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 a did a fundraiser, for example, where they were charging $5,000 a head, that they would then grant extra rights to those people who turned up. And maybe it's not that simple, but the people who turn up get to sit right beside the minister and talk to them for two hours and get that access that, for example, Yasmin's mum's not going to get because she's busy caring for sick people. The problem with our laws is that we have disclosures. Yes, that is that if you donate more than, I think it's about $13,000 to a political party, that gets revealed on the 1st of February every year. But that can take 12 months to be revealed, unlike other countries where it's in real time. The moment you donate, it comes up on a register. But the other um, big loophole in our laws is that you might decide to donate because you don't want people seeing that you're personally donating. So you donate to a fund called the Fortune 500 Fund. And that fund gives $3 million to the Liberal Party. Who's in that fund? That never gets disclosed. All we get to see on the 1st of February is that the Fortune 500 Club gave money. And you might remember the case of Joe Hockey when he was collecting all this money in fundraisers through Fortune 500 type clubs or um, the particular one that was donating to Joe Hockey's campaign. And the Age newspaper ran a story about this and they said the headline was, and I'm quoting here, this isn't my personal opinion, it said, um, hockey for sale. Now what happened was in that internet age, the story got picked up on Twitter, The Age promoted it on Twitter, so it had hockey for sale. And we have laws around fair speech and fair context. So the actual newspaper story was fine because it was explained in the story that it was part of this club that had given money. But on Twitter, where back then you only had 140 characters, it was really defamatory because there was no context around it. And Joe Hockey successfully sued based on that, that it looked like he was a minister on the take. Now, I guess what I'm getting, that's kind of the pointy end of how these things make it into the public, but the big problem here is that we as citizens don't get to see who's doing political donations, how much they're donating, um, if these loopholes are enacted. And the other problem is if you, say, um, want to, you might be an oil company and you want to give $10,000 to the Victorian minister, you might give some to the New South Wales Minister, some to Queensland. Each time you're below the threshold of that 14,000 mark. So across all the states and territories and federally, you can give eight times that 10,000. There's $80,000 that again slips through the loophole. So time, access, money are really big problems in Australia. The US tries to overcome this by having a cap on how much money you can collect. But that doesn't work very well either because even politicians like Obama choose not to comply with that system. You've got a choice in the US and you can independently raise money through what they call super PACs. Uh, and if you go down that route, then it's just like um, an arms race for whoever can raise the most money and uh, um, being able to put their hand up for the primaries to become president of that country. Yeah. yeah. Another part, part about transparency that is also relevant, I was um, recently reading a report and it's the nomination of public officials and the connection to parties at the time of government. And when you see, for example, the Labor Party and then you see the nominations for um, human rights bodies, for um, various public 
positions usually have an affiliation to the party. And the same with liberal. It, it's quite interesting. The graph literally goes red, blue. Like it, it's as clear as that. And yet we don't have the due process in place to make that process transparent too. So there's a lot of gaps. And I think, you know, this comes back to calls for a federal ICAC and for having transparency, um, you know, having third party bodies to, to be overlooking these things or us these results, you know, around donations, around nominations will keep happening. Yeah, beautiful, That's thank fun. you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I think about why are they doing this, why are they taking money, and, and look, we've actually been talking to a lot of politi politicians across multiple states at the moment in terms of rethinking how they do their donations program. If you talk to a backbencher, they will be like, I hate donations because I have to spend all my weeks, weeknights at fundraisers talking to people who think they can say whatever they want next to me and I'm worried about the exposure to the photo op and all that kind of stuff. They don't like it either. But ex elections are really expensive to run if you're a party, right? And we have this weird situation where, like, our two political parties, the, the large ones, are these institutions in Australian politics, but they're private organisations that are run on a basis of collecting their own money. And that creates all these weird incentives for them for, for like, well, I want to win, so I need some money, but, like, who can I get it from that's going to be a safe source of money or how can I hide it in certain ways? There are obviously some bad eggs and some stuff that's malpractice and misconduct and Yasmin's yeah, call for a federal ICAC obviously isn't a sensible answer, but how we design one and what its jurisdiction and, and stuff is is all up for debate. What I think might be interesting to think about here is what, would we would a system look like if we had no political donations? Perhaps we publicly funded some parties, uh, like the the party mechanism itself was maybe publicly owned. Like we, if we had a publicly owned company, we wouldn't run them like we do the parties. And we all have a stake in how these things are run. It's just a weird circumstance that I think we've ended up in and there's not much. Um, they have a lot of power, obviously, and control over how the whole entire country is run, so it's difficult to kind of shake so that up. can I put through two quick counterpoints to that? Yes, elections are expensive, no doubt about it. Political parties need funds, no question about that. The question is we need better laws for transparency about who's, so that we all get to see who's donating what, when and how much. Um, they can donate by all means, but just let us see exactly what that looks like. And the second point is Australia is really generous in how much of our taxpayer money goes into funding elections, much more than other countries. If you're a major political party and you get over 4% of the vote, for every primary vote that where someone puts a number one next to your party, you get something like $2.60. And that goes up with indexation with CPI. So $2.60 for every single vote. Um, you think about how many votes the major parties get, um, seven, eight million, and multiply that. That's taxpayers' money that goes straight to the political parties and then the fundraisers on top of that. So I'm not denying that elections are expensive. Yes, parties need to fundraise. By all means, do it. Just make it transparent so that we all get to see how it's spent Be great and who's spending it. Be great if we had a citizens' assembly on this topic, perhaps <laughs> in this state. Is that a thorough enough answer for you? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> no, we I don't think there's a lot to celebrate. There's a lot to celebrate, but. Sorry, I, I, I think we should. Just make this about citizens having a vote. You know, you, we keep saying, and by vote, I mean the ability to donate, the ability to get an ear, all of those things. 
you know, this, this should not, we should not allow people to hide behind incorporated associations, companies, anything. Right? If the company wants to donate, you know, they, they, all, the, uh, all the tax file number, people who actually own shares in that, cool, that's all good. Anyone else, some fine or something. I think we're calling for the same thing, and that's a bit more transparency. We might move to the next question, if that's all right, because we can otherwise keep spinning our wheels. The lady in front, behind you, but in front of the gentleman at the back, who was, there was someone in between. Uh, yes, it was you. And we will get over here. Um, so I've recently just kind of fallen into politics. My daughter goes to a childcare centre and uh, they were looking to close it down and we've sort of had to fight for funding and, like, learn by just falling in the deep end. Um, and I, I guess I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that there's every politician that I spoke to, they cared about just getting their party in. There was so much, like, there was one politician that was like, yeah, we're going to go talk about your issue in um, Parliament, it's going to be great. And they went to Parliament and they pointed out that the council was, uh, was liberal run and they just care about knocking the other one down. And I don't... I. Like, I don't even think that you guys are on the right track with that, it, you know, fun yes, you need to be funded, yes, you need to... I think that you can't have a democracy truly representing people when you have parties who are looking for power. It needs to be real people represented and they're, they're the only people who want to be an MP because they're going to get pulled down by the other party are people who have a really thick skin and they're not everyday people. Like, I actually joined the Greens Party to try and work on this, this issue with the childcare centre and, you know, they're like, you should be an MP. And I'm like, there is no way I would ever do that because I have a child and, you know, me and my husband could have a conversation at a coffee shop and then someone misconstrues something we say and all of a sudden my daughter is being, you know, saying things... Children are saying things about my daughter at school. There's, there's no... There's, because there's two parties and people are fighting and people are, you know, having donations and therefore they have, a, you know, a reason to, um, you know, fight for things that are not right and that are not equal for, you know, what people need in this country, I don't think that you can have... You, you definitely can't have democracy if you have any sort of donations and you definitely can't have democracy if you have parties in place because that is then people arguing about a party and no one's going to join a party. I, like, I only joined the Greens because I cannot stand either of the other parties because they are so corrupt. And this is in Australia where we don't have as much corruption as some places in the world. So it's like, I just feel like you can't not have any corruption if you have a two-party system. Um, and I guess to, like, that real extreme end, what are, your, um, what are your comments on that extreme end of you can't have democracy with a two-party system and with any type of donations? Like you said, they're already getting money. So that should be the cap. They shouldn't get any money from anyone else to owe anybody anything. Thank you. <laughs> yes. And it, 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 it does come back to, similar to Yasmin's mum, around how do people participate and have the ability to participate when there's other things that they've got to contend with. There was a lady up front here who's been very, very patient. Can I um, get a mic to her? 
Um, I just wanted to pick up on, is it Yasmin, you know, you spoke about your mother not having enough time to think about politics as opposed to Andrea who loves politics. And I I'm not saying I'm normal, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone goes and does political science. So. Um, look, I can't help but just think about the connection between our very uh, capitalism on steroids, neoliberal capitalism, which has been our political and economic framework for the last 30 or 40 years. And with that has been you know, a commensurate rise in inequality. Um, we now have a class of workers which we call the precariat. You know, we are, I think, number four in the list of OECD countries, might even be number two, actually, for workers who are termed as having insecure work. So I see this is all part of neoliberalism's agenda, whereby we've got the rise of individualism, that's what neoliberalism's about. If you have workers like your mother, who has to work across three different workplaces and in, under you know, pretty exploitative conditions, uh, it suppresses um, unions' capacity to organise, so we have no collective voice there. Um, people are too exhausted to actually even engage with politics. So I just wanted to comment on that, but also link it to, you know, I think a lot of people have checked out of democracy because of their personal experiences. And I think that is a deliberate strategy of neoliberalism, where people are dehumanised, um, they don't have time to engage, they've kind of given up. And therefore, one of the other things we have, of course, is the rise of populism, um, because people don't trust Labor and Liberal. Um, and unfortunately, they think Clive Palmer is the answer or Pauline Hanson. So we've got, you know, the rise of um, these parties that are presenting themselves as the Freedom Party. You know, Clive Palmer's the Freedom Party, a billionaire who actually exploited workers and is uh, uh, positing as workers' saviors, as did Donald Trump. So, you know... For me, all that relates to democracy in terms of, you know, I think democracy's just really suffered a hell of a lot uh, because we are in a capitalist system, capitalism on steroids, and I can't see representation improving and, um, you know, you talk about um, diversity and minority groups getting representation when we're in this current, you know, neoliberalism phase. Does anyone want to respond to this question or comment and the previous one? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, hands up here who trusts their politicians. To, to do what? <laughs> no, that's it. That's, so what I'm hearing here is a degree of disaffection and you feel like you were let down by your um, local member who you didn't think was, I'm talking to the first speaker here, didn't think that they were taking the childcare issue seriously enough. They were just thinking about their party. They weren't thinking about anything other than what their party was supposed to be doing and how their party would look and how this issue would make their party look better. And, you know, it's a nice little children playing and you're saving them. Um, like, there's... Yeah. You can't get the right thing while they care about their party first. So I think um, what we've found in Australia, as in other countries, is that trust in politicians has steadily been going down. But it's a really big difference between the question of trust in democracy. So when you ask questions around how confident or how much do you trust the system of democracy, Australia still ranks really highly. But when we ask 
about the performance of democracy, we rank quite poorly, and that's been trending down for the last um, 15 years at least. And that's a global pattern across most liberal democracies, and perhaps for the reasons that you're saying with capitalism on steroids, that people are feeling disenfranchised and not feeling like they belong. Um, not having trust in politicians, which is seen, or political parties, is seen as the glue that keeps the system together. So a really important question is how do you build that trust again? You don't want too much trust because when you see surveys of the most trusting countries, it's Russia and China, you want a certain degree of mistrust rather than distrust. It's good to have a bit of scepticism to be able to question decisions, but you also want to have a baseline level of trust. And, and, and that's a real problem that needs to be addressed. Um, do I have the solutions to it? No, not necessarily. But I do know that in terms of chronic crisis, where we get to democracy as a system of government, and we've all just lived through a chronic crisis with the pandemic, trust in politicians has gone up, at least for the first half of the pandemic. Um, and that's been a good thing, because it meant that we had this unique system of a national cabinet, where our state politicians and our federal politicians were coming together for the first time ever outside of war. And they were having to agree on decision-making. And with some exceptions, you had almost uniform messages at the start of the pandemic coming from the media, which is really important for public policy enactment, that we were able to do the social distancing measures, do the lockdowns that were necessary. Now, I'm not saying two years in that the, the trust levels, we've been studying this, um, myself, colleagues at University of Melbourne and University of Sydney, we found those trust levels are now back down to what they were with pre pandemic. Um, so there's a longer term problem to deal with there. But when it came crunch time, the trust in the system of democracy um, proved well to be able to get policy consensus. That wasn't the experience of the US where they had a dissensus and were unable to get the policy outcomes that Australia was able to, which ultimately cost a lot of lives. So I guess the next question we want to think about is, is what next? What can we do? Do we feel disenfranchised? Do we feel empowered? Do we feel like we can make a difference? Um, these are the sorts of things I want to sort of unpack in this second half, but I have not forgotten this gentleman who's been very patient here. So if we can grab a mic for him, that would be great. I am privileged. I'm white. I'm male. I'm of an age, which you can probably guess, I received mostly a free education. And I understand nurses, childcare, teachers, anyone who's had a child during the pandemic probably knows they're worth double what they get paid. I'm eventually going to be in an old person's home. I want my carers looked after as much as they look after me. But the trouble with those sorts of things, if they were put out as policies, is the misinformation that could go with it would destroy any attempt to do so. How are we going to have democracy when a democracy needs you to make decisions, decisions are based upon information, and that information is being corrupted by people who can corrupt it. I, I think, um, Andrew did a little bit of research in this. I think this might be relevant. You, yeah. <laughs> Give us a bit about that background and then maybe answer the question, please. Um, so one of the things I've been looking at is mis- and disinformation working with Facebook on various projects because this is the global problem of our time. Um, how do we get better quality information? Uh, it's a really good question because there's, a, there's at least three forces that are going against it. 
The first is in Australia, the business model for media has been broken compared to last century where it was built on advertising. The technology, digital tech companies have found a much more successful way of hoovering up all that advertising dollar and they have, which has meant that there's been layoffs and downsizing of traditional media. Not saying that traditional media was by all means perfect, but they hire professional journalists and there's ethical um, codes of conduct that they are supposed to abide by, as well as the national broadcaster. So that's one thing. The business model is broken for mainstream media. The government's got a few ideas of how to fix that that we can go into. The second thing is that you've got politicians and other political actors that actively are trying to delegitimise the media using terminology such as fake news. And we've all seen that clip of Donald Trump in the CNN press conference saying, I'm not speaking to you, you're fake news, you're impolite, you're rude. And then the other journalist tries to stand up for the journalist and he goes, I don't like you much either, you're fake news too, which is you know, quite a funny clip to show the students. But the problem with it is, is that label of fake news has a really delegitimising effect so that when something is reported that politicians don't like, instead of engaging with the idea and saying, well, here's the viewpoints that weren't argued or this is why I have this point of view, instead they just say, no, it's fake news and cuts off the debate. There's no discussion. Um, and then the third mechanism is that there is some low-quality news out there. There is some, as Julia Gillard said, don't write crap. The best example of that is the UK's News of the World that was using, um, tapping into famous people and also um, the poor family of a teenage murder victim, tapping into her phone in order to get stories. There's no public interest in that. Um, so people do become distrustful of the media. So how do we correct that? Um, it's obviously not easy. It involves um, a multi-pronged approach. It needs greater cooperation from the tech companies coming together and pulling the fake content off their sites. They need to talk more with each other as well about how they do that. Australia's put a couple of things in place. The first is a mis- and disinformation code, which began last year, where the companies are now self-reporting and starting to lean in a little more on this conversation. There's a lot more that can be done, but it's a good first step. The government has also introduced the News Media Bargaining Code, which means that um, first in the world, it means that some of that advertising revenue is now going back to media companies so they can hire, in theory, journalists again. It's not perfect legislation. There's about $200 million that's changed hand to go back to media companies. It could be improved. I'd like to see it improved with a guarantee that it goes back to journalism. At the moment, there's no guarantee that it does that. And the tech companies are picking and choosing who they're dealing with. So they're dealing with the major players, the Murdoch papers and the Nine papers. And we probably need a lot more diversity than that. It would be nice to see some of that money going to the smaller startups that care about particular interests and have expertise there. Um, but it, it, it needs greater collaboration, multi-pronged approach. And the other thing is civil society actors are really good at recognising mis- and disinformation campaigns because their citizens are usually among the first that are persecuted, such as um, people from minority groups or LGBTI communities. Having good relationships between the tech platforms, and this is starting to happen, and those civil society actors to call out saying, we know that these people are being discriminated against, 
turn your algorithm down or start pulling this stuff off. So we need a few more formal processes, but it is the global problem of our time. And how important... Do you, sorry, Colin. Go oh, on. yeah, sure. I, look, sometimes I think when we're talking about this problem as well, we are sometimes when we talk about misinformation, we're also talking about cognitive biases and, and participation with people who have different views to us. Like, no doubt there's information out there that's factually incorrect. But a lot of the problem that kind of stems at the moment is people mistaking what is misinformation for the view of someone who is informed from a totally different worldview, right? Um, like, you should think about it yourselves. Like, how, much, how diverse is the news channels, sources that you um, consume every day? I ask my friends this all the time, and they're always like, oh, I just open The Guardian every morning, and that's it. And I'm like, well, there's lots of stuff that's not reported in that paper that's reported in some other papers. And it's about... John sort of started segueing into, into how can we do this, like what's your role in all of this and how can you improve our democratic processes. I think it's about diversifying your own news sources and behaving in a way that is critically thinking, aware of your own unconscious biases and really understanding of why someone might be approaching a problem from that angle. Not necessarily always misinformation, but just that you're actually talking about a problem from different news sources. I think my favourite example of this is like Joe Rogan. He's a guy who's obsessed with, um, like, anti-vaccination stuff. And back when um, the beginning of the pandemic was happening and everyone was like, just get your jab, go get it, he was really on top of, like, the, set, the sort of side effects that were kind of happening in terms of the long-term stuff, just, like, people getting sick when they first got it or some of the um, AZ stuff. Most people were like, no, it's fine, just go get your, go get your, um, your jab. That's because they're not thinking about any of the negative stuff. They're like, it's already in their, their sort of brain to just go and get the jab that's safe kind of understanding for them. But Joe's someone who is particularly focused on, and look, not advocating his particular lens on this, but he's really interested in it. So he goes deep dive and he knows all of the specific details about this. You see this with conspiracy theorists and well, they know the Kennedy ones know exactly what memo, the executive order for withdrawing troops out of Vietnam and stuff was. I have no idea about that because I'm not a conspiracy theorist about this kind of thing. But they do have little factoids. Even though they're, they're on that other side, it's definitely true that one little piece of information that they have, it's just maybe slightly through a different lens. And I think sometimes we can get mistaken for those two angles. Yeah, you raise a good point. How often do people out there even think? I would say that this community thinks, but as a general population, how many people have got time to think or energy to think or information to make the proper thoughtful considerations? Um, John, before you go to the next question, I just wanted to quickly touch upon that as well, if possible. I just also want to talk about the constraints of the debate and, and where we set the limits and where misinformation can go. And often when we talk about democracy, we don't talk about the legal system. And if we talk about something like, you know, paying, caring for care workers, the legal system can also have policies, not policies, laws in place to say, no, it's quite clear that aged care workers are being underpaid for their skill set. Let's legislate, or I guess not legislate, but mandate that the government has to fund them better. And that's also should exist. And the reality we're talking in that context is that the Fair Work Commission can do that, but the laws in place make it so difficult for that to happen that every single case put forward has failed because it has meant basically an impossible test. 
The test is that you have to find a male group that is doing essentially the same work. And try to compare a female-dominated industry to a male industry like manufacturing or teaching. It's like apples and oranges. So there's also, I think, um, our rights can also be something ingrained within the legal system to offer a, a protection against something that is at the hands of politicians who can exploit that, whereas the legal system can also, I guess, act, um, act in this space too. Yeah, so many layers to democracy on top of the voting process that we've got to factor in, consider and think about. Um, uh, this is really a question for the audience. Um, yeah, how many people do you know, maybe this is yourself, that potentially have a confirmation bias and how would you know? And then what processes do you have um, to understand whether you even have an unconscious bias? That's a question I just want to ask everyone because until we become aware and engage and discipline ourselves around that, then we are potentially just as much of the problem as the solution. So, but I'm... Um, we can have a separate session about that, yes. Yes, absolutely, yes. I think you wanted to say something? Oh, just nodding. Okay. Great. Trying to be, he's one being trying to be conscious. Just one moment for the mic. Thank you. Yeah, look, the stuff with social media, like, you know, a lot of political discourse has now moved to social media and we've got disinformation as a huge issue. But on the issue of, you know, confirmation bias, I think there's... There's actually a lot of research out there which is about the way our brain is wired and we are wired to have that sort of bias. Yes. So people will see stuff on social media, whether they're a pro-vax or an anti-vax or whatever the issue is, and that will immediately feed into the hardwiring of, yeah, great, you know, that, that, that's the information trail I'm going to follow, whereas the guy you're talking about would be in the complete other... His brain is hardwired to look for information that validates his position. So, and this is how, you know, now we've got a... You know, we've got people... We've got a, an unregulated media environment that's kind of sealed where people are not reading The Guardian or The Herald Sun or whatever. Um, they are just communicating with people on social media who are all people that probably have exactly the same views that they have. So it just basically... And if, and if those views are, are absolutely disinformation, um, you just get more and more people circulating disinformation and then you get someone like Craig Kelly uh, <laughs> leading the way. So with, with, that, with the stuff with disinformation, there is a lot of research about the fact that, you know, a, a part of it is psychology and the way our brain is wired with all the biases. Um, there's an interesting book that just came out which Ed Coper wrote called Facts. It's called Facts and Other Lies, Welcome to the Disinformation Age. It just came out a couple of months ago. Um, and also Van Battam did a book on um, QAnon and conspiracy cults. They're both pretty fascinating but quite disturbing reads. Um, but I think they've plugged very, <laughs> very relevant to discussions about democracy because whilst the internet ironically democratised education and information on one level, um, back in the utopian days, it was like, great, we can just get information and knowledge um, by, you know, logging onto our computers. Um, now we've got this other malicious force, which is disinformation, and it can really disrupt the democratic process. And I think we saw that Russian interference in the election in 2016 basically got Donald Trump elected. 
So, you know, that's another <laughs> whole area yes. where, you know, democracy is under threat. Yeah, look, I, um, one of my things is that I think, like, in behavioural psychology, a lot of those kind of biases and stuff that Kahneman and Tversky kind of invented a long time, while ago have not stood the test of time, but confirmation bias definitely has, and it's probably the one thing that's singularly destroying the world. Um, but the way I think that just to shift this in a direction that's kind of like, what are the, what's the solution? Like, what do we do about all of this? When we're talking about those groups, the Craig Kellys and the Clive Palmers and, and even your disaffection with the major parties and shifting over to the Greens, one way of thinking about this and populism in general is that in representative politics, everyone is, is there's no, I've kind of said this before, there's no single strand of logic that connects the entirety of the Labor Party's policy, right? But me as an individual voter might find a particular part of it that's appealing and I find my, my home there. When you don't find your home in any of the major parties, then you're pushed to the edges, right? And the edges are occupied by a few, a few voices in, in this case. At the moment, that's getting a bit more diverse because people find their homes on Facebook and not just within political parties. There's, there's, it's a bit more of an ecosystem that's got some deep, deep um, tunnels, I guess. Um, how do we fix this? We create a system that ho hopefully channels people's views back into a process that lets them feel heard and they're not feeling pushed outside of the system. I um, don't want to sound like a one-trick pony, but I think citizens' assemblies do this. It's about channeling a process that lets someone feel heard, communicate with other people, and get outside of maybe the bubble that they're, they find themselves in, whether it's information or, or just their lives. So can I say a word about Craig Kelly? We're talking about two separate things that fall under the umbrella of this very broad but vague term called fake news. On one side, you've got disinformation, which is where you've got people who are deliberately spreading information for their own political purposes, usually for political gain, or they might be spreading it um, to harm others, such as Russian interference. Craig Kelly falls into the disinformation camp where he is fanning certain types of information to achieve political gain, which is he wants to get re-elected as outside he's um, no longer with the Liberal Party but with Clive Palmer. Then you've got misinformation, which is unconscious bias and all sorts of other things that are going on where people are not deliberately trying to spread information. I might hear something from my mum, I think it's a great idea, it might factually be false, but I've spread it to all my friends and family on Twitter or Facebook. That's still false information, still fake news, but it's not with deliberate intent, and we need to deal with those separately, and the big tech companies and the governments are dealing with those separately, because one of, the, one of them's really mischievous, the other one's not, however, both can cause real world harm. I can be putting out a solution to what I think is a great idea to cure COVID that might actually kill people. And so even though I'm not intending to hurt people, I could actually hurt people. So we need to deal with both, but we need to deal with them in different ways. And we need to be careful how we do it so we don't shut down democracy. Because if we take everything off the internet, which is what Russia's doing right now, and it's giving you a 15-year jail term if you say something that it says is fake news with a very vague definition of what's fake news. In other words, anyone can be hauled away and go to jail for spreading fake news because the government of the day decides it. That's a real problem. So we need to separate out between those two terms. Um, and I, I would just encourage everyone to be sceptical with the Craig Kelly stuff. 
I totally agree with what you said. One of the major issues that many people will, will feel is that in social media, the, the, the retweet and, and the forward, mindless forwards, and it gets extremely irritating. You keep fighting this battle on and on mm -hmm. to correct the person, and sometimes they don't even care. Should people have a whole personal responsibility for what they are forwarding and retweeting? Sure, but it's not necessarily the answer, is it? Because I don't know I'm necessarily sending out false information. I agree, but I should have, or somebody should be able to say, is this true? And so you should be able to... So who is that somebody? Is it going to be government? Because governments can do things for their own interests, which is what we see in Russia agreed. at the moment. Agreed. And do we want to give it to a commercial multinational company like Facebook to be the arbiters of what they think is your truthful information or not? So this is where we get into a really important policy debate about who is the arbiter of truth. And often in society, there's many truths. So there's lots of different ways that that can be approached. One is to work out how to define whether it's false news or not and have an objective set of definitions that are then enacted by an arm's length body, which is what the mis and disinformation code is trying to do in Australia. But you point to how complex this problem is. The other way in some of the um, Asian countries, such as Indonesia and India, which has a really big problem of fake news on WhatsApp, which are encrypted networks, is they limit how many times someone can forward something so that um, it can't be mass disseminated to 2,000 people. But everything has consequences. So the moment you do that, businesses that were relying on using WhatsApp to promote their business suddenly find they can only forward their promotional material to two other people because they get caught up in this policy. Mm. So this is why I call it, you know, a big problem, probably one of the greatest problems of our time, and it's very complex to find the right answer to it. Yeah, I mean, I'd also like to touch upon what was said about confirmation bias and heuristics. And something I want to emphasise is that politicians, like all human beings, also have confirmation bias and suffer from these things. And I think politics is the definition of confirmation bias. You're meant to advocate and represent your party and you're meant to all think the same, which I know is not in practice, but that's what it encourages. And to me, I was really reminded of that when Scott Morrison talked about Brittany Higgins. And you saw this real disconnect of lived experience versus someone trying to grapple their way through something that they didn't know how to speak about and, and hadn't experienced with their own eyes. And after that happened, there was sexual um, harassment training in Parliament. And I'd heard that many politicians had scoffed at it and said, why do we need this? It's not important. Like, this, this isn't happening. This isn't a thing. So it is something that is affecting politics. And I would even suggest maybe it's helpful if politicians are consistently educated about how to identify these heuristics and confirmation bias. Maybe we would get better outcomes that way if we're aware. But it's also affecting us too with things like TikTok or Instagram. The algorithm is thinking for us. We don't search out this information. It's now appearing as if it's there before our mind has the time to decide what we want to look at. So I guess there are many ways. You know, education, when I went through high school, we never had a conversation about disinformation. Even teachers can be can fall to the trap of disinformation too. Nurses too about things like vaccines. So it's happening in real time. But I think educational interventions are um, important. We wanted to finish on time, but here's the challenge. I've seen more hands up now than I've seen the entire evening, which 
creates this slight dilemma. So what we might do is, if I can just ask you to respectfully keep to your time for those people who are going to say something, that's the first thing. And I actually still do want to come back to what the hell can we do? Because we, we can get angry and frustrated about what's broken and what's not right. And I don't think we'll really resolve that in this room tonight. So I think what we can do is potentially have an awareness about what we can do, what we should do, and where we could potentially go and find better, more uh, appropriate measures to resolve this. So um, we might come to this lady who I know has been waving her hand on, then, then sit up here, and then the gentleman at the back. Again, just kind of keep it brief if possible. Um, over 25 years ago, I was accused by my politics and the media lecturer um, as being the most cynical and jaded 18-year-old that he'd ever come across. Um, so in all of this time, what I look for is where do all the three of you who've studied these things find hope? So I hear nothing but issues, really. And the more that my brain tries to encompass it, it's like trying to imagine the universe. Um, the problems are just deep and broad and pervasive and dark. So. Where do you find hope? I can answer that in two words. Um, Vladimir Zelensky. I think you've got real leadership there. You've got a political leader, president of the Ukraine. He's facing an enormous situation. He's representing his people and is countering mis and disinformation um, and is showing uh, bravery that often gets forgotten in day-to-day -day politics. Thank you. I can easily tell you where I think I see hope, and it's in the spread of citizens' assemblies all around the world, right? And uh, like, can you give an example where that's worked? Yeah, so maybe. Just, so Ireland, first country in the world to resolve marriage equality, Catholic Ireland, used the citizens' assembly process to rewrite the constitutional changes that was going to go to referendum, right? And then they did the same thing on abortion law reform. It's just been used recently in France on climate change and in Denmark, climate change, and we've used it here in Australia at local council and, and, and state levels. What's exciting about this is that it's, it is spreading everywhere and, and we're learning what works, what doesn't work, and the process is really maturing. Politicians like it, and the real barrier is that they think that everyday people don't care about what the, the structural problems with democracy, people don't have the time, all these issues that we've identified here that reflect on their approach to politics, politicians think just reflects on that issue. What we can do about it, um, I don't want to assume that I've closed on your interest in, in citizens' assemblies, but visit changepolitics.org.au, where I, where I work. What would help is just being able to go up to a politician when we're in our, our meetings and just demonstrate that there are the numbers of people who are understanding of citizens' assemblies and want to see them used. I think once people see them in practice, once people get the chance to be involved in them, um, they become really accepting and, and understanding of the process and really hopeful for change. I, I would encourage you not to feel too jaded. Lots of good stuff happens. Yeah. We still have one of the best for the rest of you. on the planet, I think. <laughs> Lots of good stuff happens, um, and progress is slow. Politics is a very, very long game, and I think you just sometimes need to have a, a bit of a long time horizon. But even in my experience, like I've been working at New Democracy for five years, and when I first started, like this conversation around citizens' assemblies and citizens' juries was in its infancy, and they, they were, we were really working quite hard to get them up. Um, and now they're spreading all over the world, right? Um, Ireland just sent out 35,000 invitations to people to be part of 
uh, Citizens Assembly on Biodiversity and one on how to elect the Mayor of Dublin. Um, Denmark has a rolling Citizens Assembly on, on climate change at the moment that is just slowly giving recommendations to its parliament so that it can resolve them, not just land on all at once. And Belgium's experimenting with local councils that have everyday randomly selected Belgians alongside their elected councillors and they work in concert. Um, there's lots of examples of this stuff working around the world. I think um, we, if we kind of time traveled 20, 50 years in the future, I think we will see citizens' assemblies as a core mechanism for how we make our public decisions. They work, they solve a lot of the problems that we've been talking about. It's just about getting the awareness and getting the change happening. And like constitutional change in Australia is going to be tough, but I think it's not un undoable. Um, I, I feel hope because I can think. You know, it sounds a bit weird, but um, I was recently doing events for International Women's Day and felt a bit jaded seeing all the corporatization of feminism. Mm -hmm. That was pretty hard to be in those spaces and to advocate. And for a while it was like, is that what I've become? Am I just kind of like a corporate hack? And then I realised, no, like, I have a brain and I can think. And when I'm in these spaces, even when they're uncomfortable and even when they don't look like people like me and it can feel gross, I am my own person. And I don't have to subscribe to this game and become, you know, a chess piece. I am capable of thinking about my values and I hold that really, really close to me. Um, but I'm also encouraged by people like... Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins and Chanel Contos. I was able to meet them a few weeks ago and I realised standing together, we are all young women who are taking part in this conversation. Even when it's easy to turn around and say, this is gross, I don't want to touch it, we still decided to speak up. And now we have things like mandatory consent education because of Chanel's petition. So there is things happening and I see young women often leading the charge. That gives me hope. But I think having my own thought, independent thought, that's something that helps me. I think one of the things that's interesting to me is that we've got a, an environment that's under stress. We've got a democratic or political system under stress and we've got people um, and an economic system that's arguably under distress and it's that crisis that creates the very opportunity we have. And one of the things that I notice when I work with a lot of young people is they have a, a deep distrust of institution and because we've always done it type attitudes. And so when those young people want that shift and they move into positions of leadership, then we have some interesting things. Because we have a, it's a gen, I'm going to get this wrong, it's a gen Z who I think it's 40% now currently in senior leadership positions and it's only going to be another 10 years before they are majority in the leadership positions. Then they start to move into things like prime minister type potentiality. That's when I think we'll see that shift. I don't think we'll see it in the short term, but I'm absolutely convinced we'll see it in the long term. And the young people are adamant that what's going on is not right. They see their parents whose, uh, whose life savings are just destroyed, their, you know, their environment destroyed. They don't want to be any part of that. And so for me, that's where I see the hope, but we just have to allow the process to do its thing. Um, that's my personal view, but um, we might move quickly to here and then quickly down the back, because then we need to really need to finish. Thank you. It's a great question. Thanks, John. Uh, look, I was thinking about when you made the comment as to what can we do, uh, and I was trying to draw a parallel. As you know, I do a bit of work in the education space, and I was reading Jordan Peterson, the Canadian academic who talks about gender equality or equal opportunity, and one of the comments he makes is, equal opportunity is a must-have, expecting equal equality of outcome is expecting way too much. 
So my question, probably more thoughts and comments from the panel is, do we know what we want out of democracy? Like what is the outcome that we would defined? Or do we want to stop at equal opportunity to everyone or equality of opportunity to everyone and then let the system find out what the outcomes are? Thank you. Did anyone quickly want to respond before I go to the next question? Yeah, um, I, I've heard that portrayed in, in often like in contrast to feminism as if feminism is saying that everything should be 50% women and that's not what it is. It's talking about structural barriers. It's saying that people should be able to do what they want to do and not be harmed because of things like systemic sexism, racism, um, class as we just talked about. So it's bringing those barriers down and I think in a democracy, we should all be working to bring those barriers down. It's not having politicians in the room that are women or people of colour just for the sake of it. It's because there are real barriers in place right now and we need to have people who have experienced it to create better outcomes for everyone. And surely, as a democracy, we should be optimistic enough to say that we should always be striving for better outcomes. Thank you. We might go down to the back. Hi there. Um, just on one of the last points that we're talking about, the confirmation biases. Um, for me personally, I haven't really sided with a political party because I suspect that by you know following the Labor Party or following the Liberal Party, I'm going to go to those heuristics again and then just use confirmation bias to come to a conclusion when it comes to new policy, like for example, handling COVID. Um, do you think that is true or untrue in the fact that following a certain political side or party can result in confirmation biases, and do you think that diminishes from independent thought? I'm sorry to break it to you, but no matter what you do, you're going to have your confirmation bias. <laughs> yeah. Um, look. The extent of uh, confirmation biases that you might. Yeah, I think following and falling in with political parties and groups and stuff gets you into an environment where you're around people that are similarly minded and it closes you off sometimes, definitely. But it doesn't mean you, you can't develop practices that help counteract that. Like, just think about the news sources you consume. Consider, like, a thing that I try and do is, whenever I think about something, how, like, question myself how sure I am that that is actually the case. Just give yourself, like, a weighting, almost, of, well, I'm about 60% sure that's the way the... The, the, like the way the situation is, that kind of stuff. Anything you can kind of question, the immediate instinct that you have when you think about information is a good way of, of tackling that. There's plenty of good books out there. Yeah. Thank you. We might just give each of our speakers a, a very short opportunity to just close your thoughts around tonight. Um, so we might start with Jasmine again and go that direction if it's all right. Oh, trying to close <laughs> this. How do we close it? Um, but I, I think, you know, what I've heard tonight in the room is, is healthy scepticism, but I also think we're sitting here today because we're not turning away from democracy. And there's something in that, that there is a ton of flaws in the systems in which we live, but democracy can still be such a powerful vehicle for change. And that is something that I believe in. And, you know, I think about things like school strike for climate. I think about the really disappointing judgment that was handed down, which says that the minister doesn't have a duty of care to young people in light of climate change. But I also think standing with young people, marching, calling for climate action, there's something in that. Because as young people, we saw ourselves, we rallied together, and we changed, our minds were shifted. It was front of mind. And the same thing goes with Black Lives Matter or March for Justice. That solidarity means something. Because even if our politicians don't respond within a three-year term, that 
mindset shift changes generations and it will, I believe, change how our leaders think. So I think standing with people like that um, does give me solace that I do think things still positively change. Thank you. Andrea? Thanks, John. Uh, is our democracy perfect? No. Are our politicians perfect? No. But we shouldn't take for granted what we have. In answer to your point that you just made, you've got to vote. We're so lucky in this country to all have a vote and we've got an opportunity to make it count. How you choose to make it count is a personal decision for you. Um, for our resident sceptic, um, you know, it's great that you're a critical thinker, um, but we shouldn't take for granted what we have in this country. You just have to look at people who aren't having the freedom of expression, being able to assemble like this. Um, you know, my heart goes out to the people of Ukraine right now who only two weeks ago were people working behind desks, teaching kids, being childcare workers, and now they've been um, forced to be fighters for their state. That There's no democratic rights going on at the moment for them, and the world is taking this a liberal turn. Increasingly, democracies are under attack, and so we should really value that we live in a country that does respect the right for everyone to have a different viewpoint. Cool. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, I guess the point I want to leave you with is, is that there are different ways of doing democracy and that we're this close to having them implemented across Australia. Um, head to changepolitics.org.au and, and check it out, add your name. The primary barrier at the moment is that politicians think you don't care, so it really is that simple of you dropping on, dropping your name down and showing that you do. Um, yeah, thank you. Awesome. And thank you to John. Oh, yeah, thank you. Thank Thanks you. for coming along. We want to thank our guests here. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world.